Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. I'm your host today, Alex Collins. Uh, with me is our guest, Nick Domino. Nick is also in the financial services industry. He uh, works back on the East Coast. Uh, we recently had a chance to catch up at a conference, and uh, Nick specializes in working with 401ks. Thought that that would be a, a good topic for, for the podcast. Uh, but before we get there, uh, today... Oh, of course, Nick. Good to have you. And well, we were just chatting a little bit beforehand. You press some magic button where you sound even better on the microphone than you did like three minutes ago. You need to show me what that button is. One day. <laughs> There's no magic button, my friend. There's no magic button. Um, so today I'm drinking uh, three Forian, uh, their platinum blend. It, it This is a Belgian beer. It's a, a lambic. Um, uh, it's almost kind of like a sour. Since Ryan isn't here today, I get to drink a sour. Um, yeah, Nick, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what like, your beer style and what you enjoy drinking. So uh, I didn't get the uh, beer memo. Uh, so I'm stuck with my can of WD-40 that just is sitting on my desk. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was just saying to Alex, too, that I, I really like sours. There was actually a, a beer uh, by a local brewery by me in Brooklyn called uh, Tulea that was... Uh, that I had the other day came in this like kind of art deco, super poppy, bubbly can, but it was, it was a right amount of fermentation in that sour. It was an excellent beer. Nice. Nice. If you're a fan of sours, if you ever make it out to, uh, to Portland, Oregon, I uh, highly recommend checking out a brewery called Cascade. Uh, they are known as the, the house of sours and they, they make some of my favorite sours. The house of sours. That's great. Yeah. Actually, you know, I, I actually, um, I, I used to go to this event every single year called, uh, it's called the uh, world of sake. I love, I love sake. I I'm a, I'm a big, big sake fan. And there's a, uh, brewery slash distillery out in Oregon. That's one of the only, uh, us ones that I've always wanted to go uh, out to in the, in the Portland area. Very cool. This has uh, it's a nice kick to it. There's there's a little bit of sour to it. Uh, it's more orange than than anything else, uh, and it's it's a, a blended lambic. Uh, highly recommend checking this out. Um, in terms of a bottle cap rating, I'm I'm giving this a nine out of ten. Um, uh, big big fan of this of the the beer, and uh, you know check out uh, uh, three Fornian, um, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Um, so. Today's topic of conversation, qualified retirement plans, things like 401ks, right, Nick? No. So what would you say are the three biggest mistakes that uh, the participants make in 401ks? The participants make in 401ks. Hmm. Uh, I would first start with the idea of, of anchoring. A lot of, a lot of participants have this idea in their head that they've heard somewhere a number, 3%, 4%, 5%, and, and it's anchored to some number within their head. And they, they heard it somewhere, that's a good idea. And people usually are somewhere in this range, but they don't actually, they don't actually realize that it's a percentage, that that percent is a percent of their income. Sure. Right? People are like, oh, 8% is the right number. Well, it depends on how much you make, right? <laughs> Further, further, there's something called a summary plan description and your or SPD. And within there, you will see some companies 
that three, four, five, six, eight percent is only based on your base income, not or bonus or any commissions or anything on top of that. And understanding what that percentage actually relates to is incredibly important. It it can make a huge difference if you wind up with like uh, an RSU distribution or a bonus check and like you suddenly have like 8% taken out of that, like it can throw off the numbers quite a bit, right? Uh, yeah, quite, quite a lot. And, and further, what throws off the numbers a lot of the time is that uh, people don't necessarily understand that that percentage comes out of their take on pay on a pre-tax basis. So if you're if you're deferring six percent to make a hundred thousand dollars, you might think that would cost you six thousand dollars a year. That's it's not costing you six thousand dollars a year, right? Because it's coming out on a pre-tax basis. So therefore, the net cost to you is actually significantly less than that. And that's going to be different for everybody across the country, depending upon their income level, what state they live in, whether the state has income tax. Uh, here in Washington, we're pretty lucky. We don't have income tax. Um, for now. <laughs> correct. Although you and I were talking about uh, Washington recently passed uh, a cap gains tax. Mm-hmm. So good news is that's not going to really hit your 401ks, uh, but it's going to make a difference in what type of decision you make with your 401k dollars. Completely. So uh, I had a good friend from uh, New York that left New York to go to Washington he was all excited that when he was selling his company, he wouldn't have to pay that capital gains tax. You know, I miss him. Plenty of friends wish you came back. And then he, he messaged the other day, hey, guys, you know, car- karma came back around. I, uh, <laughs> as I'm getting these distributions, I now have that, <laughs> that extra 7% cap gains tax on top of everything else. So, yeah, look, legislative risk is real, right? It's, you can't, it, it's, a, it's a very real risk. Well, and it's, it's something where, like we're making decisions for 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future. There, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to change over that time period. Completely. And as much as inside you want to say, oh, you're right. You should have nef- never left New York. At the end of the day, <laughs> I'm going to come back eventually. No matter what. Well, for sure. For sure. No, New York is a wonderful place to visit. Yes, not any, <laughs> not, not any less taxi. I, you know, when I was in, I was out in Seattle, I went to go ski crystal with him uh, earlier last year and a few other friends, and I couldn't believe the tax on on like on actually talk about beer, alcohol, right? The alcohol tax out there is absurd. Oh, it's draconian. It's <laughs> like it, it's crazy. Like there are certain things that Washington taxes. Like we've well, we don't have an income tax. We do have. Uh, sales tax, our, our real estate taxes are relatively high. Taxes on like uh, uh, lodging and restaurants are pretty high. Um, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol and gas taxes are pretty high out here too. Yeah, no wonder. No, no, no wonder. It's like the land, like the Washington and, and Oregon are very like health conscious now because it's so expensive to drink. Like people are like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like I got text out the wrong group. Cool. So, so number one is not anchoring. Number two, what would what would number two be for you? Uh, I would say number two is probably probably understanding who we take advice from. So let's be probably setting the table for when when you walk into your four hundred one k enrollment conversation. Sometimes there's somebody there 
guy, gal in a monkey suit that's clearly from the, only from the record company, right? The company that is sponsoring the 401k. If that person's directly from the 401k company, typically you're only going to get advice about the 401k. And that advice is going to go something like this. Philosophy, 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 put as much money in as possible. Well, they have an incentive to do that. Exactly. Now, granted, anybody that's an advisor on a 401k has an incentive to do that. But there sure. are there are other types of advisors, independent types of advisors that go and um, and give more holistic advice around a around a 401k enrollment. So if you're, if the person in there is not a direct employee of the record company, that's a good sign. And that person, you can usually go and ask a plethora of other questions and get a lot more information from them. And you're going to get a lot more information. That person might be able to look at your other investments. Maybe your, maybe your cousin handles some of your other investments and they can give you an, an honest look and, 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 and analysis of your, how your mortgages work in relation to your, to, to your, um, to your 401k, what your overall savings can or should be otherwise, uh, what types of insurances you either should or shouldn't have as well. And that person will spend more time with you and have a more objective, um, they'll become from a more objective place than just, no, your deferral rate into your 401k should be 35%. Yeah. I mean, so the takeaway that I'm hearing is know where your advice is coming from and make sure you put it through at least somewhat of a filter to, to like have a general sense of like, okay, what should I be doing and why um, is, is kind of the takeaway there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also knowing that who, who are you talking to? That's always in any scenario that's helpful. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Uh, on to number three, what, what would the third most important uh, aspect be? I would say the third most important aspect is knowing who your beneficiary is. It, that might seem really, that doesn't might everybody really, know who their beneficiary is? You would you would think that everybody knows who their beneficiary is. One, there are some tricky things that happen that sometimes our beneficiary gets changed and we don't even necessarily realize it. How how would that ever happen? Well, let's say when we started, we made it our sister and our brother. Well, in case my I have my two sisters and my brother. I don't want I don't want to start family drama if anybody. <laughs> And my family watches this, <laughs> so let's say it's, it's uh, them. And then when I uh, when I went and got married, legally the beneficiary changes of your qualified plan to your spouse. So that also means that if you were married and you're planning on no longer being married, let's say you have a, a divorce that's being drawn out for a long time. Let's say you are separated. If you pass during that time, well, all the qualified plan money is going to your, is, is going to your uh, ex-spouse. And plenty of times as well, people don't actually go and update those beneficiaries afterwards making sure you keep track of who your beneficiaries are and changing it is and you, by the way, you, you can change your beneficiary while you're married. You just need to get a beneficiary form signed and notarized. 
by both yourself and your spouse. Now, if somebody has an issue with a beneficiary and something happens where they pass away, are there any fixes? No. <laughs> once, <laughs> once, <laughs> once, uh, a will you can direct can direct the beneficiaries, but there are a few types of beneficiary designations that supersede wills. Some of those would be life insurance. Life insurance supersedes your will, uh, the directions of your will. Another one of those is your four hundred one k. Your four hundred one k or your qualified plan directed beneficiaries go to whoever you state that beneficiary is. That's not just a four hundred one k. That's also that's also your IRA. So an individual IRA, yeah, you probably set it up yourself or you, you somebody set one up for you a long time ago and you put money in there in between jobs. Making sure that that beneficiary is who you want it to be is really important because even though you're no longer here, it creates a lot of turmoil afterwards. Yeah. Like you were telling, talking about a story where it's like somebody – like a family had moved internationally and like there was still a relationship uh, with like the kids. Yeah. And she had, she had still had a relationship with the two daughters. She had taken care of them and they, they were like her own daughters for quite some time. And, and as the relationship would uh, there, her relationship had dissolved her ex to her spouse would had passed. And she, she didn't even necessarily know whether or not all the documents were signed and the divorce was finalized. It had drawn out for a long time. Oof. Turns out it wasn't. And turns out that all this money flowed to her. And particularly for something like a qualified plan, an IRA, an IRA or a 401k, uh, this was actually, this is actually a version of a pension as well. And even if she wanted to give the money to the two daughters, it, all all these complications arose, and she could she physically could not give all that money without a huge tax burden uh, being levied upon herself. Complicated even more that she was now international. So, it, paying attention to who is uh, who your beneficiaries are is incredibly important. Not just within the four hundred one k world. You you just shared Alex that in your own world you had, <laughs> you had a family member you found some interesting information out about recently. Yeah. So I had a family member recently pass away. And so as we were digging through like the legal documents and whatnot of like the, the deceased family member, like one of the other family members that we were going through this with was like, oh, yeah, I haven't updated my will in like, well, since I got divorced. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, oh, yeah, no, my ex is still like listed on the will. And I'm like, yeah, okay, we need to get that fixed. Like, not like we need to wait, like we need to get that fixed now. I mean, like ultimately they've got a fairly good relationship and whatnot, but like at the same time, like, yeah, let's, let's make sure that we're going through beneficiaries on a regular basis. Let's make sure we're updating these things. It's, it's incredibly important because most of the time you don't get a second chance at fixing this stuff. If something goes wrong, it's over and done with. And now you're picking up the pieces and trying to figure out like, okay, what's the, what's the least expensive way of fixing this issue? Completely, completely. And look, even, even good, really good advisors sometimes miss those things. And that's why we, that's why we aggregate things in, 
annual reviews. I, I caught something like this this past year where a client of mine, his ex-boyfriend was still the beneficiary listed on the IRA. I was mortified internally when we, when I saw that, when I was putting everything all together. But luckily, we caught that. We address it. We own up to the mistake and we say, well, look, we we never changed this. I don't think you want it going to, to him any longer. Why don't we decide, let's sign this form and decide who you want him to go to. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, and again, these are way better conversations ahead of time than after the fact. Because after the fact, there's there's not much you can do, if anything. Com- completely. And I almost want to go back to the who we take advice from again here where i find that a lot of a lot of people do not go and review their beneficiaries all the time and they also don't go and review their 401k with their financial planner all the time why a lot of times it's because the financial planner is not if there if it's an uh, called what's called an AUM only assets under management only financial planner they make money by investing Charging a fee for making money, for, for investing that money. And guess what? They're not on that for, they, they don't get paid by that 401k. So a really good planner is also going to want to see the fund line up within your 401k to, to make sure it's balanced in accordance with everything else. You don't just check the box once. You, that should be something that people are reviewing on a, on, on a constant or on a, on a, doesn't need to be constant basis, but because the funds on don't change. On an ongoing period. basis. Yeah, for sure. You know, at least at least annually. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, let's. So we've talked a lot about participants and kind of like what winds up happening, like on as if I'm a participant in a 401k, what happens on on my side of the table. But maybe what are one of the two or three like interesting things that we can like peel back the curtain a little bit and let some folks see how do these decisions get made. Like, what are the things, what are like the people that create the 401k plan at the company? What are the decisions that they're making and, and, and why? Oh, I have so many answers. Let me, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like a three episode podcast right there. Right? Completely. And, 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 and the reason why 401ks get created, there are, there are, there are a plethora of reasons. And you don't always know which one, but at the end of the day, it is a really good service and public and, 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 and good that it's done. Now, there are plenty of selfish reasons as well. And there are some really, really good ways that people that own businesses can optimize. They can, they're presented with an option. They say, hey, you can pay this much more in tax or you could pay your key employees and all your employees a little bit more. Yeah, it might cost the company a little bit more, but you're giving it to your employees instead of the government. Does that make everybody happy, uh, happier and better off? Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather give more money to my employees than to the government all the time. Yeah, well, and in general, <laughs> in general, the, the government's pretty okay with that too. Yeah, you know, from a standpoint of like making sure that like the people that work for these companies are taken care of, it means that they're less likely to be, you know, having to be on the dime of the government. Look at look at some of the largest costs, right? You know, there there's there's Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, right? By 
by by making sure that people can save and and create a better future for themselves, uh, that takes the burden off of the, the, the government. And giving people onus uh, into in, into controlling their own destiny also gives people a lot of a lot of hope too. Right? <laughs> that's yeah. that's important for us as oh, a society. Yeah. Um, and I, so some of the things that we were talking about in terms of like some of the hows and the whys beforehand were like, okay, when you're competing with, you know, the sawmill across the, uh, across the yeah. river or whatever, like you can only give so many extra dollars, right? It's a, it's a race to the top. Completely. And, and the, and when we talk about a, a, an overall good, right, let's think back to like, uh, to industrial revolution, Massachusetts, right? We have these, we have these paper mills across the street from each other, both feeding off the same tributaries, both, both competing for the same exact talent pool, one side to the other. Now there's, there's a really good paper guy. You got, you got to get over to your side of the, uh, over to your production facility. Well, there's only the, the, in you maybe at first you, you, you pay that guy a little bit more to get him to, to, to come over to your uh, paper mill. But eventually you run out of being able to give somebody a present day dollar and that being more competitive. Then you can give them a future dollar and a future dollar that grows and compounds in a tax preferred way. So then you see this huge evolution of not just giving, you know, a present day dollar would be health insurance. A future dollar would be a pension. So you had these huge companies that would give these future dollars. Right? You'd work for them for 35 years and then you'd get your pension check in the mail and your in, in your gold watch every, you know, you get one gold watch and then you get a check every single month. Right. <laughs> but when that was the case, a lot of those actuarial formulas were designed so that people were retiring at the age of 65. <laughs> and then they would pass by, you know, you take your average life expectancy somewhere between 73, 74, 75, depending on what time period we're talking about. But then you run into this huge crunch, and this crunch happens in the late 70s, early 80s. A lot of advancements in modern medicine are being made, and suddenly people keep on living longer and longer and longer. And the runway and the obligation for the company keeps on getting longer and longer and longer. And suddenly at 75, no longer are there are, are 50% of the bobbies no longer with us. You still got to be, you're still paying 80% of that and you're going to be paying it for a lot longer. So then you have a lot of legislation that happens. It's called ERISA, plenty of legislation that happens in the, in the early eighties that then cleanses the companies from this, uh, obligation at that time. What well, doesn't cleanse? They just find they find alternative uh, funding strategies during that time. And one of the things that equivalent start- but different, exactly. And <laughs> and one of the things that starts to come to the forefront at that time is this little part of the tax code that was kind of forgotten about. It was uh, you know section four hundred one subsection K of the tax code, and. It's presented as, well, instead of the companies putting away money on the employee's behalf, the employees can do it and they'll be responsible for it. And if Section 401, Subsection K was actually originally just an executive bonus plan pool. 
It was an executive right. bonus plan pool from my like late 40s, early 50s. I think it was, I think it was like 52, 50. Some, it was the mid 50s that it was installed and some people used it not that much, but then enter into the, uh, in, into the 80s and it's being pushed as the primary savings vehicle. Well, that's great, but we just went from having this unlimited paycheck for life to now we need to start saving ourselves and deferring our own money. And particularly if you make more and more and more, the limits on a 401k become nearly impossible to actually fully replace your income just on that limit alone. The, right. It was never devised to do that back in the 50s. It's been updated a bit since, but... And it's constantly changing now. There's some really important legislation that's happening. Uh, something called the Secure Act 2.0 that passed at the end of last year are updating some of these provisions and allowing for Roth uh, and ra- allowing for pre-tax and post-tax Roth contributions. So we see, but, but understanding that entire narrative kind of helps give uh, a bit of the it makes you realize, okay, if companies used to put away all that, I'm no longer getting the role. I'm never no longer getting the watch in the mail and I'm not getting <laughs> that check. I'd probably have to do, be doing more than just putting some numbers between five and 8% because that's where I anchor to into my 401k. Yeah. Well, it becomes something where we need to do a lot more rigor on trying to figure it out and make sure. And ultimately the, the, the decision-making authority, good or bad, got handed from the company on down to the participants. And that can be a really good thing or it can be a really bad thing. All depends on how well you educate yourself. And that's ultimately why, like why this podcast exists is to help try and give you actionable information on little bits of finance. So uh, for our question today, I thought you came up with a great question, Nick, and I, I wrote it down. If you didn't, um, so do you remember your question? I, I do remember the question. It is going back to learning, right? We all remember learning PEMDAS, right? The order of operations. So let's say within our, let's say our life goes ideally from now until whenever it is in the future, we reach all the financial, personal, and professional goals that we want to achieve in our life. Ideally, in what order do we distribute our 401k? Like what what number of our assets close to the front, close to the back? Is that where we start? Is that where we take our money from? Yeah. So our question today, and you can go ahead and head on over to beerandmoney.net to answer this. Or if there's a, a topic that you want us to talk about, uh, if you want to request that Nick comes back and does three more podcasts on like creation of qualified retirement plans, great. Let us know. Um, but the question today is, when are you expecting to start taking dollars from your 401k? And when do you expect to stop taking dollars from your 401k? Hopefully you got some value out of today's episode. Uh, Go ahead, Nick. And I'll, I'll also say that uh, Alex and I were riffing back and forth on the answer to that because I we both believe that there is some sort of a sweet spot and there's some sort of correct answer there. It's maybe not an exact number, but we both agree that there is some order there that really optimizes more often than not. And I don't think 
everybody comes close to even understanding the correct answer. <laughs> no. And like, you would answer that totally incorrectly. I mean, I, I think somebody that you, that you follow as well, somebody who I, I certainly admire, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bob, Bob Kivit, who's there in New York. Um, and he tells, one of the things that he says quite often is, yeah, I think I stopped counting at about 54 variables when trying to put together a retirement plan. <laughs> I, I, there were more, I just stopped at 54. No. Um, and so like the answer is, it is not necessarily like, oh yeah, no, it's X. It, there's a lot of nuance to this. So anyway, head on over to beerandmoney.net to answer that question. Uh, if you have more topics that you want to go ahead and request, um, go ahead and do so there. There's a spot for you to, to leave some comments for, for myself, for Ryan. We'll make sure it gets over to Nick if you want to say something to Nick. Uh, hopefully you got value out of today's episode. And uh, as always, cheers. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'll oh, bring a beer next time. I will.